Hey fellow fraud fighters, I'm Jimmy Fong, CCO at Seon, and welcome to the Cat and Mouse podcast. Seon is fortunate to work with businesses such as the likes of Revolut, Nubank, and Patreon in the fight against fraud. But with this podcast, we want to provide a comfortable space for people to talk about the daily challenges, topics on the horizon, and ultimately give us all a better insight into the mindset of fraudsters. And with that, on with the show. So I'm very excited to uh, share. We've got Claire Mallet, uh, the head of financial crime over at Yaya Finance, joining us for uh, this Cat and Mouse podcast. Claire, a big welcome to you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So let's uh, let's uh, uh, kind of start with that then. So you head up FinCrime uh, for Yaya Finance. Uh, for the audience out there, uh, maybe a sentence on uh, yeah what Yaya Finance does, uh, who you help with today. Yeah, sure. So. Um, Yaya Finance is a a, a credit card company. Um, We're probably most well known at the moment for having um, migrated over the Bank of Ireland um, customers back in October 2020. Um, And yeah, we're hoping to launch our own um, products um, very, very soon. Super cool. Nice. Um, And uh, in our pre-chat, what we particularly love from your background as a um, broad fighter was actually the amazing kind of um, academic background you had leading up to kind of your current adventure, right? Um, maybe we can jump back into some of uh, some of that. So, so my understanding is you uh, mastered in counter fraud and counter corruption uh, studies. Uh, mm-hmm. so that's how your academia started. Um, I'll be really curious just to hear, yeah, what what was that experience like? How did that arm you with kind of your mindset? Yeah, sure. I mean, that that seems like a long time ago now. And it was actually, it was uh, back in 2016. Um, I undertook a um, part-time master's with the University of um, uh, Portsmouth, um, basically looking at how um, and corruption and fraud taint the world as we know it, really. Um, the um, modules itself could range from anything from um, international fraud and um, corruption to um, economic crime within sport, within um, human trafficking, exploitation, that sort of thing. So it was very, very vast. Um, for my thesis, in the end, I um, chose on looking at the um, value of um, and data sharing um, internationally for the purposes of um, fraud detection and um, prevention. Um, and I think that that sort of put me in a good stead to understand not only how economic crime works within the uh, UK, but also on a wider scale as well. Yeah, amazing. Um, and very pertinent indeed to kind of your day-to-day expertise on how you help mm. organizations. Um, even before that, like I was curious to, um, in that thesis uh, originally that you pulled out for your master's, what were you seeing as roadblocks to things like information being shared with an organization that uh, would help, of course, uh, the kind of international financial crime kind of uh, combating? So obviously there's going to be the standardization issues. You know, lots of, lots of countries have economic crime data. Um, however, it's not measured in the same way. It's not captured in the same way. And there will often be bits of data that certain countries or certain groups capture that others don't and so it's very difficult to sort of find the links between 
all of them if you have different data being um, and collected by different um, organizations, different groups. Um, and the lack of standardization between those makes it very difficult to create a unified approach to tackling economic crime. Obviously, there are groups such as um, Europol um, and others along those lines who work on an international global basis. Um, however, that from a, um, a government's uh, um, perspective will also impact how economic crime is dealt with um, fr from one country to another as well. That makes total sense there. Um, and I can only imagine <laughs> that the complexity in trying to have any form of standardization, um, mm. gosh, that, that just sounds like an almost insurmountable challenge. Uh, in order yeah. to, <laughs> um, how nitty gritty did you get into some options that might be considered uh, to try and solve that? Like, I guess that's been something that's been, yeah, a decades, decades long kind of challenge there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you can, you can obviously put in all of the steps that you think would be necessary, but unless you get the approval um, and the um, get-go and um, uh, um, proactive attitude from everyone else, you know, it, it isn't just one person saying, I want to do this and this is how I'm going to go about doing it. You need the buy-in from everyone else as well. And I think within, especially within financial services, there's a real siloed approach to tackling economic crime because they don't want to let other uh, um, competitors know what they're what they're doing, um, and they want to be seen as the best company among all of their and um, um, competitors. And so, I think there's there's that danger of let alone um uh, and businesses I'm sticking and to a siloed approach. If we think about that on a wider scale, if we have countries doing the same, then, you know, obviously fraud and other economic crime isn't going to stay within one country. It's going to cross borders. And so I think we need to get out of the habit of thinking that a siloed approach is the best way to work. Yeah, that's, um, that's a very recurring theme we get on this show with this move away from kind of siloed. And, and oftentimes it is cited, Claire, that there's certain incentives if you're a private business yeah. where there's competition there's winning market as you mentioned and there's also the uh, intellectual property advantage of uh, the data that's coming through so it's not always yeah. in the interest of literally the financial survival of that business beating yeah. competitors to to kind of break down the silos and and share as freely as possible and that's really cool because that masters that you you um uh, conducted was done at a time where uh, I think during the day you were working at one of um, uh, kind of the, the most well-known global online retailers uh, at that stage in your day job uh, as, as literally uh, in fraud investigations uh, for that online retailer. And then you moved on to, I think, SciFast, which I think represents a lot of <laughs> kind of the philosophy of trying to break down the barriers of information share, right? Uh, and to uh, give useful information to all organizations that are part of that network there. Um, so Hello, it's interesting man. to have a mix of academia and your day role of fighting crime uh, from an from a operational level. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, I always knew that it would be brilliant, obviously, to get the um, um, professional expertise in my in my field, but to be able to back that up with the academic knowledge as well, it just it just adds an extra layer. Um, uh, and personally, and it it really allows me to think things through from um, uh, and different um, perspectives as well. Um, and yeah, I just see it as a way of me being able to learn learn more and to understand more about this field that I love so much and to be able to understand other people's views and to see where research has um, changed and, and developed over time as well. It's all really, really useful. And I was going to say with your current, so you're now um, embarking on, uh, or for the last couple of years, I think, on uh, uh, conducting your PhD uh, as an extension of the University of Portsmouth, if I understand mm. correctly. And it's yes. into the criminal justice uh, studies there. Um, and it's, I think that's scheduled. You're still in the process, right? I'm a third of the way through. Um, and it's a, a, a part-time um, a, a PhD. So it takes six years in total. Um, so I'm a third of the way through, <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's looking at the role of insider fraudsters within business. Um, so I've sort of left the uh, uh, and, uh, and corruption bit to one side um and i just really wanted to focus on the internal fraud stuff i just find it so interesting um and i think particularly during um uh, uh, and covid times um it's it's a a fraud ideology that's becoming more and more spoken about so the fact that i've sort of started doing this and um, and during COVID has been actually very, very well timed. Um, but it's something that I find very, very interesting. And to me, it sort of opens up a new way of thinking because you're not just thinking about people perpetrating fraud against a business or a person where there's that separation there. You're doing it against your own employer. And that sort of creates a link between you and the people that hired you basically you know and they uh, 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 and pay your wages and i think it just takes a whole different type of person to sort of have the guts to do that in a way and so for me i just thought that it'll be an a a, a a a topic that's just too interesting to not and research basically yeah, amazing. We we had our last uh, guest, Raphael, um, who uh, heads up fraud for a very large uh, online gambling company, and he was mm. he was uh, sharing. Um, uh, he used to run his own uh, taxi business in Latin America, yeah. uh, and um, what he was saying was that uh, one of his own taxi drivers he experienced fraud, you know, very much that firsthand, where one mm. of his employees, his own taxi drivers, uh, defrauded him and. It was the most, it sounded like the most ridiculous of like tales where he had found it out when the taxi driver had literally given uh, customers a one digit difference bank account number to pay into. And wow. so, so it was kind of, it opened up that he was sophisticated enough to get the bank's help with creating a new bank account that was almost the same as his, but just one di digit different. 
But then mm. secondly, it was coming from that one taxi driver, so it would have been like tracked back eventually. So it wasn't very sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah. It, it opens up all sorts of questions of psychology around, well, they knew they must have been caught eventually, so they're willing to yeah. burn relationships for, and in that world, like relatively small sums, uh, you know, even relative to kind of local like lifestyle. Um, so yeah, just like all sorts of like questions around yeah. motive, around the opportunism, around uh, yeah, kind of yeah, kind of what the heck was going on in the head there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so in your thesis, I'm, I'm curious. Any kind of like kind of topical uh, things that y- you're finding particularly fascinating uh, that you're pulling out from that doctorate uh, that you might share? Like, I'm curious to to that. Yeah, so at the moment, I'm currently looking at sort of what a company can do to stop economic crime. So we're looking at the um, codes of um, uh, uh, and conduct the company can have in place um, uh, uh, and policies and processes to help um, businesses stop um, inside of fraud, but also looking at the morality and the ethics of the staff themselves because if you look at the interview process for example you essentially need to establish within an hour or two of just talking to someone either are they going to be a be able to do the job that you want them to do b are they going to add value to your business and c are they actually going to try to defraud you and um, uh, uh, and basically and i think just through having a quick chat with them it's very difficult to gauge where their morals lie and that's something that you actually can't really measure in itself because what could be moral to me might not be moral to you and also vice versa and so you're sort of looking at a gauge like a like a really wide scale of how do you measure that um and behavior against what the company expects you to do so at the moment i'm looking into a few a few different bits um that that will need to be narrowed down but it's quite difficult at the start because you've got so many different parts of one topic that you're so interested in and you're being told to narrow it down and you're like i don't want to it's too interesting (laughs) so yeah it's definitely getting somewhere but uh, i'm still fairly early on in the process yeah, fascinating. Um, and I, when you when you talk about that example, I think of, gosh, uh, how 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 big does that scale have to be? You think of mm. control, uh, as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Of, uh, yeah. There's so many factors. Like it's subjective as anything, really. Which is absolutely. And you're right. Even yeah, we, we constantly um, as a startup ourselves, we constantly are looking at, um, gosh, in that multiple kind of interview process. People are, of course, their best self. Uh, you know, it's yeah. literally the, the dynamic of a situation. And um, all we're trying to do in that stage is, you know, will they be amazing at that particular roles and responsibilities? Um, mm-hmm. That's fairly defined. But let alone when you're trying to look at it, how can you, other than say moral, like uh, kind of expectations, yeah. as you'd expect, is a whole new factor. We're not even like for us, we're not even necessarily thinking of that. We're, we're yeah. Yeah. so that's really interesting uh, to to. To kind of consider that um i wanted also to to kind of take our chat uh, to um another area in terms of i think your practical experience as you've kind of worked in the fraud and risk kind of world um mm. i'd love to kind of hear how you view um claire kind of two major concepts around um 
kind of uh, onboarding new customers. Uh, mm-hmm. You've had a lot of pragmatic experience in this and, you know, having teams to kind of look after this. How do you view um, kind of using technology uh, for onboarding new customers, whether it's used externally or as a tech company or a financial technology company building in-house? How, how do you kind of view that equation? I mean, I think that there are pros and cons to both, um, which is probably a very um, dull and diplomatic answer that you weren't after um, necessarily. But I think with with the people who who sell these um, uh, 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 and technologies, they are they are the experts, and that that's what they do. That's their product. That's their livelihood. And so you can you can really tell when someone is selling a um uh, uh, um product that they truly believe in and that's key I think in how you present a uh, uh, product to a uh, uh, a potential customer because you can easily tell the difference between someone who sells the product because they want commission and those who sell the product because they think it's genuinely a really really good product and so by being able to use that I think is also is also very very interesting as well from that perspective but I think in-house is also really really beneficial because you know the company you know how it works you know how it functions and if you come from an external perspective you have you have the complications of thinking how is this tech going to fit into our company to our processes our journey whereas if you have it built in-house, then you already know that. You've already got those obstacles out of the way, as it were. And so, yeah, there are definitely pros and cons to both. And I think they can work both ways. Um, I've seen it in, in uh, uh, and different companies work uh, 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 um, um, both ways, but obviously both come with their own um, challenges. But I've seen it work. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's a totally fair <laughs> response. And no, no need for the, the kind of precursor of, uh, oh, this is, uh, yeah, kind of the balanced argument. Uh, I think yeah. that's solid <laughs> rationale there. <laughs> um, also curious with, um, I guess, the uh, age-old consideration of um, how, how do you balance um, having an amazing, especially in fintech, right, amazing UX, like almost magical onboarding experience versus, say, security? and avoiding yeah. the right type of customer. How, how do you kind of view that equation? I mean, yeah, that's an old age question, isn't it? I've, I've worked in risk teams in the fraud space where the focus has purely been on, we don't really care about the customer. We just want to keep the bad guys out. And I've also worked in the operation space where it's, yes, we want to keep the bad guys out, but we really love the customer and we need to keep them happy. So I've seen it from both perspectives. Um, and yeah, it is a balance that is definitely difficult. But from, from my experience, what I've sort of come to try to portray is if you increase the security, you may make customers less happy than a smooth onboarding journey. However, I'd like to think that especially in this day and age where everything's gone a bit techy, it's gone digital, that actually I would like to think personally that the customer would understand 
that the business is doing what it can to protect the customer. And I don't know if this is just because of my background, but if I had to go through more stages to sign up to a business, I would be more inclined to think, well, actually, is the business doing this to help me? And I would almost feel safer in that respect. I know that there are people out there who will think, no, it has to be smooth. It has to be easy. That's definitely your background. In like 10 <laughs> seconds. But for me personally, I would like to think that actually, if there are, if there are say maybe one or two extra steps, then actually that would make me trust the uh, uh, company more. Because I'm, I don't, I don't see the point in trying to implement tech for the sake of, if it serves a purpose, then I don't see why it shouldn't be done. Um, and so I think, yeah, if, if you're able to justify why you're adding more security steps in there, then I think the customers w- would hopefully be grateful in return because ultimately you're doing what you can to protect them and their money as well. Just before our chat, Claire, uh, uh, we were on a uh, Zoom with a, a, a co-founder uh, of a large payroll fintech. And uh, they were very upfront with, um, gosh, by removing some of those onboarding steps, uh, I think uh, we would almost create the reverse image that, hey, this is a bit sketchy. Why is it so easy to sign up to this service where where we're going to like front load uh, employees' wages into their (laughs) bank account? And they're not even asking me for my selfie, uh, you know, et cetera. So it's a totally valid argument that, Maybe removing uh, all friction isn't always applicable in every circumstance mm. and onboarding. Like you said, it can give a bit of confidence as well. Um, mm. you know, th- there's always balance, I'm sure, uh, to that. Um, and, and I wanted also to um, uh, kind of get your point of view, Claire, on one of the big advocates I know you, you, you have um, on a personal and also in a professional stance is um, kind of the, the subject around mental health within the kind of workspace as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to hear kind of um, maybe your own personal kind of experience, but then also kind of where you've seen um, that advocacy uh, work work really well and effectively within kind of your your working life there. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've I've always been very open about my um, mental health problems. I've I've had them for well over a decade now, um, and so I've. I've kind of grown into the space where I am open to having those conversations. And as a mental health first aider, I am absolutely more than happy to have those conversations as well. Um, And I think that in return, you sort of become aware of how do you then apply what you're experiencing to customers who are vulnerable. And I think it, it does open up that kind of new sort of space that people might often overlook because if you can't put yourself in their shoes then it's it it's so much more difficult to understand how you can as a um a, a company how you can help those customers and so definitely from um that perspective that has really really helped me from a an operations financial crime um, standpoint but also just from a, from a view of being able to assist the company culture for me being able to openly talk about my mental illnesses I think really really helps to 
get your colleagues to understand that they aren't the only person who probably feels the way that they're feeling. And it just, it just starts the conversations. It helps to break down the stigma. And I think anything that anyone can do to help normalize those discussions, I think it's, it's definitely all, all for the better. Yeah. And I think, I think COVID obviously brought a lot of um, uh, kind of spotlight to Mm. uh, obviously um, quite strained working uh, kind of environments, of course. Right. Uh, Yeah. You know, normality was kind of broken uh, and is broken. Um, And I I think that added strain just puts even more of a spotlight on um, how to help, uh, you know, us as uh, teammates, friends, humans, um, in, in that situation. And um, is there any kind of, um, from your point of view, any kind of uh, practical kind of, um, kind of, I guess, uh, advice you might share with other risk teams out there uh, where, you know, and, and I think the risk teams are always the perfect example of the incentives are so hard for fraud fighters. On one hand, um, their role is to safeguard good business. Um, but on the other hand, the private businesses need to grow. So, yeah. so there's a massive conflict there, uh, it just intrinsically. Um, any, I'm curious to any kind of tips to other, uh, say, um, managers of fraud fighters in terms of how to support in the initiative you just mentioned. Uh, yeah. I, think, I think it should be key for all businesses to have mental health first aiders. I think that, that sort of goes without saying. Um, it's really, really beneficial. And I think it should be mandatory, really, for all businesses to have mental health first aiders, especially given, you know, in the sort of uh, 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 and COVID world or post-COVID world that we live in. I think it's, it's become all the more important now. And I think that mental health is sort of finally starting to get the voice that it needed um, from a sort of risk team perspective I think it should be it should just be something that people are willing to talk about you know I think I just think if you if you say that you're open to have those discussions as both a mental health first aider and a people manager as well you know I've always said to my team I'm I'm more than open to have these and discussions with you and I shall I shall take off my uh, 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 manager hats and put on my mental health hat because sometimes you don't want to talk to your boss about it but you want to talk to someone else and I think if I'm able to offer my team both of those, then I think, you know, that that puts me in a good position to ultimately keep my team happy and to look after them from both a um, um, professional and a uh, 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 and personal viewpoint as well. So. That makes total sense. Um, for, for me, my takeaways uh, from, from this is um, one is... Uh, <laughs> I think empathy and understanding um, is kind of critical uh, and mm. given kind of added stress of, you know, in the last two years. Um, and I think, yeah, I think any thriving company, uh, that's clearly what's at top of mind is to help, you know, your fellow humans uh, yeah. you know, kind of be successful in, in, mm. in 
what 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 they what they're doing. So so th thank you for sharing that. Um, Claire, this has been a fascinating chat. Um, I, um, I really appreciate you know the the kind of topics we dived into. Um, as you may know, um, our show is the uh, Cat and Mouse podcast, and we always try and ask our guests um, in, in the world of professional fraud fighter like yourself uh, versus uh, the adversary, the professional fraudster. Um, who, who do you think represents the cat uh, and who represents the mouse in that scenario and why, uh, Claire? Um, I, would, I would say that the fraudsters are the mice because they're, they're always one step ahead, aren't they? As much as I hate to say it, they always are one step ahead. Um, but I think, you know, we are, we are always going to be chasing them. We're always going to be one step behind potentially because by, by the time we've worked out how to tackle one type of fraud, they've already worked out how to do the next lot of fraud, haven't they? So we are, we are always going to be chasing, I believe. Um, I think you can, you can have the best tech, the best people in the world working for you in your in your aim to fight fraud, but they'll they'll always find new ways. Um, even before we can think of, you know, how how is this piece of tech or this legislation going to be exploited? They'll have already worked that up, that that out, I think. Um, but I don't necessarily think it's always mice we're chasing. I think because obviously fraud, fraud comes in so many different forms, so we don't always know what we're looking for until it hits. And so, yes, you could say that we're the cats and we're chasing mice, but actually we're also chasing unknowns to an extent um, because we can, we can hazard a guess as to what sort of frauds are going to be out there based on what we already know, but we don't know what we don't know. Right. So I think, yeah, they'll they'll always be mice to catch, but we're we're also chasing the unknown as well. Yeah, that's um, that's awesome. Thank you again so much <laughs> for coming on. Really, thank uh, really you. Good. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.